So it's a great honour and a privilege to be here with Peter Singer, who is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at the University Centre for Human Values at Princeton University and, law, and a Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne. Peter is consistently described as one of the leading philosophers and public intellectuals in the world, and I think he is one of the most influential and significant Australians of all time um, for his work in founding the modern animal rights movement, and also for his work in practical ethics and international development and the eradication of extreme poverty. Before we begin, uh, a quick disclaimer that I'm not a philosopher, nor even a student of philosophy in any meaningful sense, whereas Peter has spent a lifetime answering the most serious and challenging questions about morality and what it means to be human, while the most pressing questions I deal with are what to order on Uber Eats for dinner each night. But I am interested in other human beings and what it means to live an ethical and authentic life in the 21st century, and also how Professor Singer views his own contributions to humanity and life on Earth. So for listeners and readers not familiar with your, your work, Professor Singer, could you please give a, a brief uh, vignette-filled overview of your life story in your terms, um, including that of your family's migration to Australia and your education at, at Ormond College in the University of Melbourne and your work as a philosopher? <laughs> okay, happy to do that, Nick. Um, but first, I think you need to learn to cook so that you can stop ordering from Uber. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I was born in Australia in 1946, in other words, just after the war. Uh, my parents came to Australia just before the war. They were uh, refugees from Austria, from Vienna, and they were Jewish. So once the Nazis marched in, they realized that they had to leave and they were fortunate enough to have met an Australian who offered to sponsor them to get a visa. It wasn't easy to get a visa to come to Australia. Uh, so uh, that's where they landed. Um, I grew up in Melbourne and uh, went to the University of Melbourne, uh, originally intending to study law, but uh, an advisor here suggested I do a combined arts law degree because I'd done well in my arts subjects. And I got interested in the arts side more than the law. Uh, I completed an honours degree in philosophy and history and then decided to go on to do first a master's, uh, which I did in philosophy. and. Then I was uh, also fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go to Oxford, so I did further graduate studies at Oxford. Uh, and it was at Oxford that I got interested particularly in applied ethics, uh, which was, you couldn't really say it was a new field because it had been done for many centuries earlier, going right back to Socrates. But um, when I was at the University of Melbourne, uh, most of ethics was really conceptual analysis. It wasn't really about how we ought to live or what we ought to do. It was considered that they were not really proper questions for philosophers to answer. Uh, not by everybody in the department, and I was fortunate enough to have uh, a teacher called uh, John McCloskey who did political philosophy and was concerned about questions like what's the best kind of state or what should the limits on individual freedom be. But uh, a lot of other philosophers at that time thought that the business of philosophy was to analyze the meanings of, of moral words. Uh, but I, you know, this was a time when there was a lot of student ferment. Uh, the Vietnam War was on. There was, I'd been involved in Melbourne at, uh, in protests against the Vietnam War. And I thought that philosophy could actually connect with this. Traditionally, it had. Traditionally, philosophers had discussed questions like, should we obey an unjust law? Uh, so I tried to connect my philosophy with those issues that interested me and I uh, found an advisor at Oxford, uh, R.M. Hare, who supervised my thesis on 
whether we ought to obey the law uh, in a democracy, if, if we think, if we disagree with the law, are we obliged to obey it or not? Uh, so I was getting into what you might call normative ethics or anyway normative political philosophy and then I started writing about ethics as well, um, getting into questions about the obligations of the affluent to people in extreme poverty, uh, which was something that was triggered in part by uh, the crisis in uh, what was then East Pakistan and is now Bangladesh, when uh, and, uh, the Pakistani army brutally suppressed a movement for autonomy in, in that part of Pakistan and nine million people fled over the border into India to escape the Pakistani army. So nine million refugees in a small area in a very poor country uh, and not getting really enough assistance from the rich nations of the world and that's what got me thinking about what are my obligations as an individual, didn't have a lot of money, I was living on a scholarship and my wife was a school teacher but still uh, living comfortably and what were our obligations to help people who were in such desperate need. Mm. So while I was preparing for this interview, I found it most helpful to start with your 1972 essay, Famine, Affluence and Morality. So I think I actually um, was able to understand your subsequent work on animal rights and effective altruism, um, which we'll explore, I guess, later throughout the interview, um, with, with, uh, with the grounding in this essay. So can you touch on, um, I guess, in, 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 in greater depth, perhaps you've already done so, um, the suffering and devastation that was then occurring in East Bengal and, and how it prompted you to write the essay, but I suppose most relevantly, relevantly because you've already covered this off, um, what it was that you were saying that had not been said before or had not been heard in that particular way that it had the impact that it did? Right, well, well Famine, Affluence and Morality is the essay that I was referring to that mm. was prompted by that situation, but also prompted by the desire to write something that was... Uh, applied ethics and that was relevant to a large number of people so not a sort of arcane question that you were not likely to come across you know questions like uh, is capital punishment justified are not questions that really have a practical significance for most people um, except you know as citizens voting I suppose but uh, otherwise only for people in government making those decisions Whereas questions about are we justified in spending money on luxuries that we don't really need when there are people in extreme poverty in the world um, are questions that really affect everybody who can uh, afford to buy a cup of coffee, which you know, costs as much as some people in the world have to live on for the entire day. Mm. So uh, the situation in uh, what's now Bangladesh was really a dramatic way of uh, raising this question but the question is one that goes on all the time whether there is such a crisis or not because there are people in extreme poverty uh, we can help them quite inexpensively uh, and the question is whether we're justified in ignoring that whether we can think of ourselves as living an ethical life if we don't do something significant for people in extreme poverty so um, so what did I say that was new in that essay well it's pretty hard in philosophy after uh, two millennia of <laughs> philosophy to say something that nobody has said before. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to claim that I, that I did. Um, but I certainly said things that nobody was saying at the time. Mm. Um, or pretty much you know, nobody in philosophy. Uh, in fact, as I, I mentioned in the article, uh, 
some of what I was saying was really quite consistent with traditional uh, Christian and more specifically Roman Catholic yes. teaching. Uh, because I, I think I quoted Thomas Aquinas, yes. um, who said that uh, the right to property uh, exists in order to provide to meet our basic needs, to help us better meet our needs. But um, if, in fact, it's standing in the way of meeting those basic needs, then you don't have a right to that property. So, for example, I'm a wealthy man and I'm you know, putting on a big uh, lavish feast for all my friends and there's somebody who is starving or whose family is starving and he uh, is able to come to the table and take a loaf of bread and uh, put it under his cloak and walk off with it. Um, he's not stealing, according to Aquinas. He's not stealing because I have no right to this abundance when his needs are going unsatisfied. So he actually has a right to that loaf of bread. And, and, and so in the context of what's happening in at the time, there was, I remember there's this great example you, you raised about the um, exorbitant spending on the supersonic aircraft um, and the comparatively little funding that you spent on addressing these, um, the human suffering of, I think, seven to nine million people you mentioned. Is that an example of what you're, what you're saying? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I was talking about the amount being spent to develop Concorde, which um, yeah. was the first supersonic commercial passenger plane uh, and clearly was not a great success because it was withdrawn from uh, from use after uh, it flew for some years, small number of flights, very expensive. Uh, a couple of them crashed, and uh, then it was withdrawn. So that was actually, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see now really a, a vast waste of money. Mm. Um, and that money could have gone to help people in extreme poverty to meet their needs. So I did then, and I uh, even more firmly do now, think that we ought not to have spent that kind of money when there are other people in extreme poverty. Mm. So perhaps with reference to effective altruism and your 2009 work, The Life You Can Save, um, can you expand upon this notion of moral cosmopolitanism, which I think maybe even in referencing um, Christian theology, the idea that a soul, every soul is of equal um, worth, um, can you sort of expand upon the idea of moral cosmopolitanism, the idea that all lives are equal and that individual suffering is worthy of our attention regardless of geographical distance or other factors such as familial connection or even time, the idea that we yeah, like, should yeah, consider that, it that was certainly a large part of the argument because uh, the article started by using this example, which has acquired a kind of fame of its own, about uh, seeing a small child uh, in danger of drowning in a pond um, and thinking about whether you should rescue this child. It's not your child. You're not responsible for it in any way. It's the child of a stranger and you don't know where the parents are. Um, but should you rescue it even at the cost of ruining your really expensive clothes that you happen to be wearing um, and that you wouldn't have time to take off if you're going to jump into the pond and save the child? So um, you know, pretty much everybody agrees that you should rescue the child there in front of you, even at the cost of spending, let's say, a few hundred dollars on uh, replacing those expensive clothes. Uh, but what you need to do then is to think about, well, if, if it would be wrong to leave the child to drown in the pond, is it wrong to leave the child to die of malaria because there are no bed nets uh, in that village, despite the fact that malaria is prevalent there and children often die of it? Uh, so that's, that's just a, another example where we can, for a modest amount of money, uh, save a life or certainly 
reduce the chances of a child dying. Uh, and then you have to say, well, yeah, but the one child is in front of you and the other child is on the other side of the world. One child you can actually see, the other child you don't know who the child is that you'll save. Um, one child is, you know, you'll solve the entire problem there by pulling the child out of the pond. The other child, you let's say you'll donate enough to save one child's life, but there'll be other children who are still going to die from malaria. Um, so I examine whether those kinds of things make a difference. Do they make a difference to your ethical obligations? And uh, a significant part of the argument of that article is to argue that they don't. So I'm arguing that we do have, as you were saying, cosmopolitan moral obligations. Uh, another way to look at it um, is to say, we ought to take a universal point of view. We ought to uh, not simply look at the world from where we are today. Uh, that is, you know, here I am in Melbourne, there are people in some need close to me in Melbourne, but there are people in significantly greater need elsewhere or, or needs that can be more easily uh, and effectively met elsewhere in the world. So should I first look after the needs of people in Melbourne, even if I can help more people with the limited resources I have, if I help people far away from me? Um, I would argue, no, we ought to give equal weight to everyone's interests, irrespective of where they are, irrespective of the color of their skin, their race, their religion, whatever. Uh, and that means that we ought to really be focusing much more on people in developing countries than on in our own community. As, as you mentioned in the article, it, it does kind of run run counter to, I guess, millennia of human psychological evolution in that we are kind of hardwired to be more concerned about the child drowning in the pond um, in our immediate vicinity or perhaps the child who's part of our family or, um, you know, essentially privileging the tribe or those who are most like us um, rather than, I guess, the other or someone who is, um, you know, maybe many thousands of kilometres away. And that, that seems to many people to be a natural uh, response. But can you perhaps, with thinking about that, comment on how globalisation and technology has eradicated these boundaries to, to empathy and concern to the fellow human beings? Um, and I suppose what the implications are in the, in the 21st century when those essentially are no real barriers to communicating with or having connections with or people who might be on the other side of the globe. Yes, you're right, of course, that we have now technologies to relate to people on the other side of the world that we never had uh, until relatively recently. And uh, that enables us to know what their needs are. It enables us to respond uh, to urgent needs like uh, drought, famine, civil war and so on. And I do think that that creates obligations which people didn't have a few generations ago when they couldn't really help. I mean, if you can't help somebody far away, clearly you don't have an obligation to help them. Uh, so, so that has made a difference. Um, and it's also made some kind of psychological difference because we can see more of what's happening and uh, an image is often very powerful emotionally as the image of the small Turkish boy, uh, Ayan Kurdi, uh, the family of, was a child of Syrian refugees who was washed up on the shore. Um, that made a huge impact in people's support for refugees and uh, the amount that was contributed to organizations helping refugees. So emotionally, uh, seeing something, even seeing a photo makes a difference and seeing something directly in front of you when it's not a photo makes a bigger difference. Uh, and I think there are 
as you were hinting at, I think there are obvious evolutionary reasons why that should be so, why we should be geared to help people that we can see and that we can help and that mostly will be part of our own tribal or social group uh, because that's how we've our, our ancestors lived in quite small uh, communities. But the question, the ethical question is, so, okay, so it does make a psychological difference. You can even say it's natural in some way to respond to someone you can see rather than a stranger you can't see. But given that we're aware of the situation, given that we can know that we will save a child, given that that will be a real child, just as real as the child in front of me, even if I never know who that child is, um, then I would argue that our psychological readiness to help the child near doesn't really translate into a, an ethical difference. Mm. It doesn't mean that it's required of me to help the child in front of me and not required of me to help the child far away who I don't see. So taking it one step further from the individual's responsibility in an ethical sense, um, how should governments, I suppose, prioritise the collective ethical responsibility of taxpayers, for instance, in terms of making decisions about, you know, allocating funds towards hundreds of thousands of um, people for international aid programs, for instance, in Indonesia, or, you know, um, a smaller collective of, um, of, of farmers here in Australia. Does the same kind of um, principle apply at the like, government public policy level? Well, I think the same... The the, the, the general principle is that you should try and do the most good you can, whether you're an individual or a government. Um, but it's true that governments are responsible to their electors, uh, at least if we're talking about democratic governments. And I do think that democracy is uh, sort of the, the best available system, or as uh, Winston Churchill put it, uh, the worst system except for all the others. Yeah. Um, so. So I, you know, I favour that, and I recognise that governments have to please their voters, uh, or they'll be thrown out of office. And there's no point in doing things that are going to be undone by your successor. So uh, I think here governments need to lead and encourage voters to see this as something important, as something that is not going to hurt them to spend a modest amount on effective. Uh, aid overseas uh, and it is an extremely modest amount that we're spending in fact in Australia uh, I would say it's a shamefully modest amount we're mm. spending about 22 cents in every hundred dollars that the nation earns so about one-fifth of one percent of, of what we earn as a nation uh, and that's way below other countries that we compare ourselves with it's only about a third of what the United Kingdom spends on foreign aid so uh, I think governments ought to educate the public as to how little we are spending and why the right thing to do is actually to spend more. Mm. So with this idea of moral cosmopolitanism and empathy for other sentient beings in mind, regardless of things we've talked about like vicinity and uh, other uh, things like familial connection, I'd like to move to a consideration of your work in the animal rights movement, which largely started with your 1975 work, Animal Liberation. So I'd like to begin with the question of humankind's relationship to animals and the, concepts of, and the concept of animal rights as an extension of your reconsideration of humankind's concern for the suffering of other beings and by simple extension, the suffering of animals. That question didn't come out so well when it was written um, today, mm -hmm. hastily over lunch. If I may, I'll open with a quote from Isaac Bashevis Singer's Enemies, A Love Story, which you referenced at the Mel Melbourne University the other day. So 
As often as Herman had witnessed the slaughter of animals and fish, he always had the same thought. In their behaviour towards creatures, all men were Nazis. The smugness with which man could do with another species as he pleased exemplified the most extreme racist theories, the principle that might is right. In relation to them, all people are Nazis. For the animals, it is an eternal Treblinka. So that quote seems to echo Thrasymachus' assertion that justice is nothing else than the interest of the stronger from Plato's Republic. Can you speak about the notion of speciesism, which features strongly in animal liberation? Yes. Um, it's a very powerful quote, obviously. Uh, I don't think that uh, Isaac Besheva Singer or uh, Herman, the person who she's speaking through, is saying the same as Thrasymachus, because I think Thrasymachus is really taking a cynical view that there is no such thing as justice. When he says justice is really the interest of the stronger, that's a deflationary account of justice. Mm. You know, if that's true, then sure, the stronger might force us to do what they want us to do, but that's not justice. Mm. That's compulsion. So um, I don't think that um, I.B. Singer, who incidentally is, is no relation to me. Um, <laughs> I wondered that. Yeah, yeah no. Um, I don't think that he is uh, being cynical about justice. He's just saying that uh, the relationship between ourselves and the an and animals parallels the relationship between Nazis and their victims, particularly Jews, um, in that they are stronger and then they do what they want to do. Uh, and of course, that's, that's unjust in both cases, but that's not to say that there isn't such a thing as justice. Um, it's a very powerful quote because, of course, Singer is a, a Jewish writer um, and some people would find that offensive, uh, that to compare, uh, effectively in some sense, to compare Jews with animals. Uh, you know, if you're comparing what we do to the animals with uh, what the Nazis did to the Jews, then you're sort of the, the Jews are in the position of animals. That, again, that's not what uh, I.B. Singer was, mm. was saying, um, but he was saying... These are situations in which we fail to deal rightly with people who are in our power. And in fact, we deal very wrongly with them. Uh, and although I've um, generally avoided making that comparison between Nazis and, and the way we treat animals, I can see why uh, Isaac Besheva Singer is making it um, because he he is appalled at what's happening. We, we do it without much thought for, for the victims of it. Uh, and we do it when we don't need to do it. So I think that that's, in that sense, it's an accurate account of our relationships with animals, which is one where generally we simply use them as our means, as we wish to do so, with very little thought for their interests. Now, that's not the case, perhaps, with dogs and cats or horses, other animals that we feel fondly about or have some relationship with. But it's very definitely the case with most of the animals who we eat um, because they're put, reared in factory farms with um, no real concern for their interests. Uh, we only, you know, the, the limits to how much we will crowd them together or misuse them or, uh, are really just the limits of whether we'll reduce our profits because mm. so many of them will die that we won't get the products at the end that we want to. Yeah. So it's obviously a sensitive question, but I suppose growing up in the, in the shadow of the World War II and the Holocaust and your own family's experience, but, but how much um, 
did, did your family's experience, I suppose, inform your instinctive feelings and philosophical work in regards to repulsion towards totalitarian regimes and arbitrary cruelty, violence and, and suffering? Is that something that was... I'm sure it played a significant role. You know, it's, it's very hard to trace the influences on yourself, especially when they began you know, when you were a small child. Um, but obviously I knew a lot about Nazis, I knew a lot about what the Nazis had done to my family and uh, although my parents escaped, my grandparents did not and three of them uh, were murdered in, in Nazi uh, camps. So uh, that was very present and uh, uh, as I got older I read quite a lot of history. As I mentioned I did both history and philosophy uh, here at the University of Melbourne as an undergraduate and in history uh, I did a lot of different periods. I ended up doing quite a lot of uh, history of the rise of fascism in Europe uh, and uh, the rise and fall of the Third Reich. So, um, yeah, I, I was aware of the brutality that was involved, of the breakdown of law and order, of uh, the Nazi SA thugs uh, in the streets and the things that they had done uh, to my family when the Nazis marched into Austria. So I think... Um, an abhorrence of that probably did play a role in forming my attitudes about the importance of the rule of law, the importance of decent institutions, the uh, uh, open society, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, and also concern for the weaker and the, the victims. I think all of that, uh, of course, you know, I could have had it without any Nazi background, many mm. people do, but I think mm -hmm. in my case it was no doubt influenced by that. So you've also written um, about how when you went to Oxford, I think you started speaking with your wife and, and suddenly had this sort of volta or change in, in your attitudes. You said something like, I think we need to stop eating meat or something. It was like a decision you came to together. Um, and like with the example of the suffering of millions in, in East Bengal, and the, was there any particular like vignettes or personal experiences which I, I suppose um, spurned you on to adopt that position? Or? No, I mean, I think the... Uh, the encounter I had with uh, a Canadian student, uh, Richard Keshen, who, who was a vegetarian and a vegetarian because he didn't think it was right to treat animals as the animals that we were eating were treated, um, was really the trigger for that. Uh, I'd never really thought very much about the ethics of how we treat animals up to then. And I know that will sound pretty strange today when uh, it's impossible to imagine that you get to being 24 years old and a graduate student at Oxford without having encountered people who are ethical vegetarians and who had stimulated you to think about that mm. issue. Um, but that's how it was. I had never met a... If I'd met a vegetarian at all, I think it was a Hindu. Mm. Um, and that obviously didn't really... Didn't, I didn't relate to that. But I don't think I... Until, until I met Richard Keshen, I don't think I'd ever met somebody who was an, an ethical vegetarian for non-religious reasons. Right. Uh, and you just, you know, that, that wasn't really an issue that was being discussed. There went, there was the RSPCA, which was concerned mostly about cruelty to cats and dogs. Um, but there was no discussion of the treatment of animals in factory farms. Um, mm -hmm. So I hadn't really come across that. But once I did, and once I went into it a little bit, then obviously the question of whether we were justified in eating meat arose. And as you said, I had a discussion with Renata, my wife, about that, and she agreed that uh, you know we should make that change. Um, 
and was ready to make it. So, so we did, and and that was of, of all the, the, the things that my work in ethics had actually had had on my personal life, the impact that it had on my personal life. That was by far the most momentous because here it was changing something that we did uh, every day, twice a day anyway. I didn't mm. have meat for breakfast as some Australians do, but um, you know, twice a day anyway. I was usually eating meat, and uh, this was now something we had to change. Mm. So that was uh, a big step, um, and that did lead to this turning point. And we also started thinking about our obligations to the poor and. Um, donating 10% of our income it was at that time to Oxfam for its anti-poverty work. Uh, yeah, so so that was certainly a turning point in my life. Mm. This is a bit of a longish question, but I think one of the most beautiful and impactful pieces of writing in Australia in the last decade was Anna Crian's 2012 quarterly essay, Us and Them. So it opens with a sophisticated vignette about the slipperiness between our notions of humankind and animals and how we're often able to recognise in animals those qualities we like to think make us human and, and uh, vice versa. Uh, it makes for very compelling and emotive reading and by blurring the lines between animal and human encourages us to see animals as other beings rather than mere things whose suffering either isn't morally relevant or can be explained away and even justified biblically or otherwise. So can you reflect on the role of empathy in changing attitudes towards consuming animals? Like, for instance, we don't eat other human beings because they're like us, exactly so. We don't eat species we keep as pets because we see ourselves in, in them and have feelings for them. We are generally more comfortable eating non-mammalian creatures like fish um, than mammals such as cows and sheep. And people are generally nonplussed about eating non-sentient beings without central nervous systems like oysters. So there seems to be a bit of a hierarchy based on likeness to us. Um, yes, though I don't agree that, uh, you know, if we're talking about Australians, I don't think most people are at all uncomfortable about eating pigs and cows, unfortunately. I think they, they should be. But uh, I, I don't think we've got to that point. I think the better contrast is to say we're very uncomfortable about people eating dogs um, and, and pretty uncomfortable about people eating horses. Um, so, you know, we think it's appalling that the Chinese and Koreans eat dogs, uh, but we don't really transfer that over to, well, isn't it just as appalling that we eat pigs after all? Yeah. You know, it wasn't for nothing that George Orwell made the pigs the, the leaders of Animal Farm um, above the dogs because, you know, pigs are at least as intelligent as dogs. Yeah. Um, but, but we don't have them running around the home, um, so we don't relate to them in that way. Uh, but I think, you know, that's, that's the major boundary, the idea that uh, there are some animals who we admit to our home and almost become part of our family and mm. we love them and care for them. And then these others that we don't have much to do with, and they're mostly, you know, out of sight as well, living in indoors in huge sheds, um, we just buy pieces of them at the supermarket. And uh, that's where the empathy cuts out. So, so you know, some, show us a picture of the dog markets in Seoul, mm. and, uh, and yes, empathy comes in. Show, uh, you know, pick up a piece of pork at the supermarket or, or of, uh, steak or cow, whatever it is, um, and there's very little empathy there. So I, I think the trouble with empathy, empathy is it's often too geared to those kinds of emotions. Um, uh, and it takes an effort to actually say, hey, wait a minute, pigs are also animals that can have a good life and uh, that it's wrong to inflict a miserable life on when um, just because we want to eat parts of their body. Uh, and so 
it's a kind of a cognitive empathy that we need, not mm. an emotive empathy, mm. if we're really to get beyond uh, these kinds of pretty arbitrary lines that we draw. Yes, but I mean, this leads on to my next question about how hard it is it to be human, because humans don't like thinking and cognitive empathy is certainly very difficult, something that requires effort. So how hard is it to be human when we are flawed and self-interested um, for, the, for the most part? Um, and to do what your philosophy demands with regards to our relationship with animals. So like I, you know, I feel sick sometimes when you think about 60 billion animals um, slaughtered um, and one trillion fish each year for human consumption. Um, I become quite sort of like misanthropic and almost left in a state of despair and yet I still haven't changed my behaviour in some years about eating meat. I was vegetarian for 18 months for a time and then I suppose I just, you know, you just forget about it. It becomes easy amidst the busyness of life to, to not think about others, other beings. Well, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that because uh, I think it's always there and I don't actually think it's all that difficult to... Uh, certainly it's not difficult to be vegetarian. Being vegan sometimes is a little more complicated. Uh, but uh, but I don't think it's, it's really hard to stop eating animals. Uh, and uh, yeah, my life is busy too, but that doesn't mean that I somehow would save a lot of time if only I went out and bought a, a steak or something like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, is, it, is it hard? I don't think it's really hard to be human in this way. If, if you know, by being human, you mean sort of living out the, sort of the ethics of how we ought to live. Um, I think there are various pressures, uh, psychological pressures, kind of group conformity pressures that um, lead people not to do it. Um, but I think it's really easier than many people imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, I did it for 18 months, I was there. And then right, so I'm not sure, you know, <laughs> we need to have a conversation about why you went back to eating meat after doing it for 18 months. Swordfish steaks, it was the gateway back to real steaks, uh, <laughs> anyway. Mm. Okay, so you know, some people think that the solution to people like you is to produce steaks from uh, plant-based products or uh, in vitro, you know, cell culture uh, that are real, real meat but don't involve any animal suffering and fewer greenhouse gases. Uh, so maybe, maybe it's it's actually that we have some capacity for ethical thought, but uh, it's weak and therefore it's outweighed often by you know your desire for swordfish steaks or mm. your desire for t-bone steaks or whatever yeah. they might be but i think the point remains about going back to the dunny 72 piece about if you can be moral and there's a very little cost to it then you should act to, to save the child like for getting your, your boots wet or so on but like you know you, you mentioned that before if you could have a plant-based substitute and in many ways um all the grain production on earth could sate the human need or demand for protein why wouldn't why wouldn't we do it right it seems to be more a question of human pleasure or desire for animal products rather than it does about meeting a basic need as perhaps it once was uh, you know which bore out a necessity to, to eat the mm. meat yeah um as i said i think it's partly a kind of uh, peer pressure mm. i think we are you know rather like sheep in not wanting to just go our own in our own way as individuals or many people are um and i think it may take a critical mass of people to refuse to eat animals uh, for it to become easier for other people to do so. Uh, and, and maybe we're getting there, you know, maybe we're, certainly the number of vegetarians and vegans uh, seems to be rising, or at least 
the vegan and vegetarian food is much more evident now than it used to be. You know, it's much mm. easier to find in your supermarket aisles or on your restaurant menus. So um, maybe that's going to create some sort of tipping point. Yeah. Uh, or maybe, as we we're saying, it's the production of better alternatives to meat, plant-based alternatives to meat that, that will do it. Uh, but I certainly don't despair of uh, us actually getting there. Yeah, I, it kind of leads on to a question about, um, I guess, will, really. And um, you're famously, famously an atheist, um, but I think that a lot of the things you advocate for, which is essentially compassion and kindness towards other, human, other beings, um, as regards to the things we've discussed today, would be a lot easier if we could be certain of the existence of God, um, not because we lived in fear of being struck down by some omnipotent and retributive force when we stray from what is objectively right or true, but because we could be certain of um, particular moral truths, um, which would make it easier to object to factory farming and eating meat, uh, supposing God had forbade those things. Um, and as it happens, the converse is true, where a lot of the attitudes um, towards eating meat are justified by the biblical hierarchy set out in Genesis 1, that is, that God had granted man dominion over the fish and of the sea and animals on land for uh, his use and consumption. Um, so when faced with what um, Camus called the benign indifference of the universe, that is, a universe without God, which is indifferent to our suffering and the suffering of animals on earth, why should we ultimately and metaphysically be concerned about the suffering of animals? Um, so this might be a bridge too far, but if you can keep with me, to, to sort of like borrow um, ridiculously Plato's example of the Ring of Gyges, why should we act in a moral, in a morally, in a moral way in a godless or atheistic universe uh, in which there is no punishment for injustices, um, particularly, particularly when we consider that all morality may be socially constructed, uh, including your own, or the ones that you outline in Animal Liberation? <laughs> well, I don't think that all morality is socially constructed. I do think that there are uh, objectively right ethical principles. And I think, for example, um, inflicting suffering pointlessly is something that uh, any rational being, uh, whatever society they had grown up in, uh, indeed whether they were human or some other form of rational life, uh, would be able to see was wrong. Uh, and that has nothing to do with the belief in a god, uh, because you know, there's the, the famous dilemma in, in Plato's Euthyphro about, uh, well, do the gods command things because they're right, or are they right because the gods command them? Mm. And uh, unless we want to make the gods sort of arbitrary tyrants, you have to say the gods command them because they're right. So mm. you would need uh, some sort of notion of what was right to make sense of, of that idea. Uh, of course, you can ask, well, what, what, what will motivate us to do what's right? And uh, one possible answer would be, well, because we see that it's right and we're rational beings and uh, that in itself is a motivation to, to do what we see as, as the right thing to do. But that doesn't seem to be a powerful enough motive for many people. So I do think we need to add that uh, in fact, it's a fulfilling and rewarding kind of life to do what is in accordance with our values and to feel that we're living to some purpose and that purpose is not only our own happiness, uh, but it's a purpose of making the world a better place. Uh, and I know that motivates me and it motivates a lot of people in the effective altruism movement. Mm. Uh, so I do think that that's real and there's also plenty of good psychological studies that, that back that up, that show that people who are more generous and caring about others are actually 
more ha- more content with with their lives. They mm. have greater life fulfillment and satisfaction than others. Mm. And so to to wrap up, I know you're going to run, but when you look out to the horizon of the 21st century, um, what are you most optimistic and pessimistic about for humankind uh, and other beings on the blue planet? Well, I'm I'm pessimistic, uh, particularly about our ability to deal with climate change. Uh, that seems to be the the major worry at the moment that we're not doing what we need to do that the result is going to be a warming planet which is going to be much worse for billions of the world's poorest people uh, and uh, that that's going to exacerbate a lot of problems if it were not for that I'd be reasonably optimistic about our ability to make uh, progress in feeding the world in finding solutions to violence uh, and uh, generally also in increasing concern for animals as we decreasingly actually need to use them mm. because of technological advances. Uh, so you could say I'm, I'm broadly optimistic except for okay. the problem of climate change which is a particular dilemma because it <coughs> requires everybody to act together. Um, it's not enough for one individual or even one nation to act on it. It does require coordination so it's a kind of problem where it's in short-term interests of everyone to be free riders on everyone else's actions and and that's why it's so hard to solve. I forgot to add, this is one for a friend, very quick one. Um, There's been massive social and moral transformations in the last 7,500 years, Um, for instance attitudes towards homosexuality or um, interracial marriage for instance, looking forward over the next 20 to 50 years. What are some things that you think may be considered wrong or whatever now, which you think might um, become accepted. Um, yeah, well, interestingly, the uh, conservative American columnist uh, Charles Krauthammer was asked to uh, discuss that question in a column, and um, our attitudes and treatment of animals was the thing that he mentioned, although he'd not been known previously as someone who was particularly concerned about that or a campaigner about that. Mm. Uh, so obviously, I do think that that's something that you know people will look back on with, and, and they'll be appalled at the way we treated animals as as we're now appalled at the way that, let's say, the slave owners treated African slaves or um, Romans treated Christians in the arena. Uh, but it's very hard otherwise to predict um, you know, the things that have not yet been raised and are not yet on the horizon. Um, I don't have a crystal ball for seeing. Mm. All right, well, Pe- uh, Professor Singer, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a singular pleasure. Okay, great. Good to Excellent. talk to you, Nick.